Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. I'm attorney Adam Hanson, and I'm with uh, my partner in crime, Sean Garner, and uh, we've got Cody Beeson as well in the studio today. And uh, Sean, you really wanted to hit or drive home some of the things that um, you've been seeing lately, some interviews about uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. I wanted to bring up just right off the bat here an interesting statistic that I read about uh, last week, and that was that Denmark was ranked, and you probably don't care. When I say Denmark, I'm, you're probably like, who cares? Yeah, I just lost interest. I just you know what? Listening. I'm going to talk about it. Okay. Because I'm very, I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I want to know why, okay? And I'll tell you why. So I read this article. It's like, hey, Denmark ranked again as the second happiest place in the world. I don't know what number one is, but number two, number two is Denmark, in case you wanted to know that. I don't know what the metrics are either from this article. Just I just know that they were ranked number two. Happiest place on earth, okay? North Korea is the first. I, I, maybe, okay? And so as the article went on, it's like, oh, but what they also found was that 70, I want to say off the top of my head, I know it's above 70. It's like 73% of adults in Denmark are medicated for mental illness. And like an overwhelming, like 85% of the population had said that they had been treated for severe mental illness sometime in their adult life. And so you've got the second happiest place on earth and people seems to me like they're not happy or they've got something going on there mentally. So I'm, th- I, I was curious, why is that? What? I don't know. You know, I haven't got to the bottom of it yet, but I'm, it's under investigation by myself. Do you need to go there and find out? Yeah. I probably got to go to Denmark to figure this out. A couple things come to mind. My first question is, well, how religious is that country? I don't know. You know, I don't know much about Denmark. Either probably do you that are listening. That's why when I said the word Denmark and you're like, I don't care. And you tuned out. You know what? Stay with me here. Okay. I want to know how religious that country is. And is that a tribute? What attributes to such a high... I just can't see myself wearing wooden shoes. So there, I guess that's the kicker for me. That's a stereotype and that's not allowed. Okay. Sorry. But, uh, yeah, so what do you think, Sean? I my first my first go to is like, well, what what is the religious makeup of Denmark? Are they actively involved in some sort of Christian religion? Oh, are they not? What is the common um, sentiment as far as religion goes? Because in my mind, religion seems to be a driving force when it comes to happiness. Mm-hmm. If you understand or you you um, subscribe to a greater good than yourself. Not just a greater good, because this article even brought up, they are, Danish people are very willing to pay their taxes. They have one of the highest tax payment codes in the world. And if you interview a, a, your typical Danish person, and this is very general, obviously, on the street, they will say, I love to pay my taxes. What? I recognize that my taxes- I, I don't believe that. I read this in an article this morning. Whoa. I absolutely did. Okay. And there are there are people that like to pay taxes, believe it or not, because their reason or the rationale is like they understand the greater good. So so there's a couple of reasons why it was ranked one of the happiest places, and that is because of the social equality factor that they tend to feel and a very strong sense of culture. Okay. That was the a couple of the metrics that they used. And so when it comes to paying taxes, 
the Danish people are under the understanding that, hey, I'm willing to pay into this big pot of the government, knowing that that goes to my health care and my neighbor's health care and my family's health care uh, down the street. And, uh, and so that makes me feel a greater sense of good and community. And so I love paying taxes. So that's the mentality there. And I, so I've, I've read all these things here that they're the second happiest place in the world, yet their mental illness is like skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. 85% of adults have claimed to have an episode of mental breakdown um, mm-hmm. such that it needed that's to be a conundrum. Yeah, so it's like, well, is there a lack of religion? And so one thing, I don't know. I don't know. The jury's out on this. I want to know more. I mean, th- th- there's only a population of like 6 million people in Denmark, though. That's true. So, I mean, th- to keep 6 million people happy, much easier than keeping 300 million people happy. So you're saying we should not care? Well, I'm, I'm just saying it, it, it's a totally different system. that we. I just have. talked about five, for five minutes about Denmark, and you're saying, Adam, who cares? No, no. I mean, there's something to it. There's there Because America doesn't even hit that top 10. Danish people are people too, you know? You know, the top 10 countries that are happy? Well, here, here's a couple of things that I, I take away from what you just said right there. Because most of the talking points today in American politics is the diversity is what makes us strong. And whereas I like diversity in general, I like the concept. I like people coming to the table with a different skill set, with a different um, background and, and viewpoint. So you can help see things from different angles and attack problems from different angles. Yet here's the difference. I like to attack the same problem and and try to reach the similar solution, which is um, overall prosperity and and working together to uh, to find a solution to an issue, as opposed to diversity for diversity's sake. And um, when people say yes, diversity is what makes us strong, therefore we need to let everybody in the world into our country without any checks or balances on that. And uh, I I say okay, that's that's not really what makes us strong, not just allowing every other person that wants to come to our country in just because they have a different mindset or a different skin color or a different religion. That's not in and of itself what makes us strong. What makes us strong is this unifying concept that we want to work together to make one nation strong and unified. And Denmark personifies that. Denmark, they're a very unified people. But they're not a very diverse people, and so when an individual says I, we, you know, we need to be more diverse, and then they go on to the next thing and say we need to have um, higher taxes. Look at Denmark, socialism in Denmark works. Well, you'll you'll find number one, Denmark is not a socialistic state. It it became more socialistic back in the nineties, but it began to fail, and so it reformed and it be, and it went back to more capitalism and private owned property, and and began to succeed again um, economically. But it's not diverse at all with regard to its demographic, and so those individuals need to look at okay. Diversity for diversity's sake is not the winning formula. The winning formula is allowing each individual bring their talents to the table and appreciate them for what they have to contribute. So when an individual wants to come into our country, look at what they have to contribute, not the color of their skin or their religion. What is one of the most nerve-wracking things when you go about your daily business? And I say this because I had a conversation with one of our staff members, I think it was yesterday, 
and we were talking about um, she was feeling very overwhelmed and because of the tasks we're building up. And in our conversation, she said, I guess I just feel like I, I can't control this. I can't control this, that, or the other. I think lack or a sense of lack of control tends to weigh on a person's psyche. And I think that's true, whoever you are, you know? Um, and I think, is that what's happening in Denmark? You might be the quote unquote, uh, second happiest place on earth, but if your mental health is really skyrocketing in a negative way, then the question, it begs the question, why is that? Is it because everything's on the surface, fine and dandy, we're paying all this money in taxes, one of the highest tax rates in the world, but we understand for the community good that we need to do that. I don't know. I, I argue that I would much rather have a government that did not force me to pay exorbitant taxes and instead let me do with my money what I want, let me live my life the way that I want. If it's detrimental to me and my family, then so be it. But I don't need a government entity telling me what to do or how to do it because supposedly they know better than I do. And I think that lack of control subconsciously, and what do I know? You know, this is just, I'm just talking it out here. But that lack of control of your own life is going to drive you over the edge at one point because you can't, that, that feeling of loss of control is one of the most detrimental to a person's uh, mental health. That's why freedom of speech is so important, because most therapists will tell you, you've got to talk out your feelings and then feel empowered to, to actually follow your path as you find the solutions, as you discuss them. And if you can't discuss what you're feeling without any type of fear of retribution, then you can't find the problem and seek the solution. And so, and we've felt that in in our society in general with the suppression of speech, that we're not allowed to talk in public what we feel like talking about to our closest friends behind closed doors. And that is oppressive. And and I think that leads to a continuation or um, even perpetuation of mental health issues. I don't even know if the founders understood the depth and the gravity of free speech. Yes, they included it in in our Bill of Rights, in the Constitution, but I don't know if they really understood to the extent psychologically that had on an individual. Politically, for sure they did, but psychologically, maybe not. Yeah, and and we're just seeing that now, I I would argue. Maybe we've seen it before, you know, freedom of speech throughout the the history of our United States. We've seen at times, what it looks like when a person is suppressed from saying what they want. And, and so what do we mean by that? Well, I want to be able to say what I want. Is that thought that I'm expressing verbally or maybe online as I type that out, is that accurate? Is it correct? Who knows? But if I don't ever say it, then we can't get to the bottom of that truth. It has to be worked out. My wife and I go back and forth on this all the time, which mm-hmm. isn't a p- very good example because I'm an idiot and I'm a jerk. However, she's... You have a great relationship with your wife. But she she will remind me all the time, like, she has a hard time. When I say things, I say them very matter-of-factly, like, I am 100% behind what I'm saying. Because you're male. Like an attorney? Like you're... I don't know what it is, but it's bad, apparently. That's what she tells me. And she doesn't see it. And over the years, finally, I'm like, no, I don't really, 
I'm just talking. Like, I don't really believe that all the way. I'm trying to figure it out. And once she understood where I was coming from, it made our relationship so much better that we can really be free to say what we we are thinking. That doesn't mean that it's actually right. But in that that freedom of speech, we are getting to the truth. And oftentimes in a conversation, we'll be talking and I'm saying these absurd things thinking that they're pretty on track. And as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, nope, that's not right. And I'll refine my statement or I will flat out just apologize. No, you're right. That I'm, I'm wrong. That What I'm saying is not right. I can see that now. But if I didn't have the liberty in our relationship to actually chatter on and talk like that, which could be probably offensive sometimes because I'm, I'm just saying what I'm thinking, but... She is such a sweetheart that she has come to the point where she just accepts that, that I'm an idiot and I'm a jerk. And so she just lets me rattle on. And then to the point that I, I finally say, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong. And I'm an idiot. So really, I think what it is is she just waits me out and, until I get to the conclusion of that. She's playing the long game. She plays the long game. She's much more patient than I am. But I think this idea of freedom of speech, I don't know if our founders really understood it all the way the depth of that or not, I recognize that they understood to a certain extent that it was a very valuable concept in a society for that society to grow. And as we see that curbed now more and more over this past, what, three years, let's say, or uh, during the Trump administration, most definitely, that uh, when you can't say what you actually think it becomes very detrimental. And what tends to happen is a, I would argue, like this uh, riot mentality that just kind of festers and blooms within a people. And that people, at a certain point, are going to boil over and do things that uh, a revolt. They're going to revolt. And I think that's what we're seeing personally uh, right now with certain social issues that are flying around like gender um, affirmation things and, and different psychologies that are being thrust or have been thrust on, on us, I feel like, over the last year or two. And I think the populace is getting to the point of like, whoa, 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 it, enough is enough. Like, I never really subscribed to that, and you made me do that, but I really don't believe that, you know? And the fact that I can't say that is super frustrating because, again, I feel like I don't have control of what I can say, and therefore I'm going to revolt. That that's a great point. In fact, it reminds me um, of a recent interview that um, Vivek had with Tucker Carlson, and we're going to take a break, but we're going to come back with a discussion point that Vivek talked about with Tucker Carlson about how to measure the health of a democracy or a republic. Democratic Republic like we live in. So we'll be back after a break. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. 
I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back. This is Life, Death, and the Law. We're going to go into a clip between, uh, it's a conversation with Tucker Carlson and uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. They're talking about general issues, and and January 6th comes up. And he says, what, Tucker Carlson poses the question, what is January 6th? Was it an insurrection? And Vivek's answer was, was very telling. And he said, listen, there's a lot of things that you could call it. And I'm not going to go into what you call it as much as to what caused it. And, it, and that feeds very well into exactly what Adam is talking about. When people can't speak, that their mental health begins to decline. And Vivek speaks to this and what is the result of it. So go ahead and play that clip. Um, so let's just go through this. Another thing you can't say is that maybe January 6th, while appalling on one level, maybe it was not an insurrection. So let me, let me talk about, I've, I, haven't, I haven't talked about this much in the campaign. I'll be very honest with you. You want to know what caused January 6th? There's such a temptation to say that there's one man whose name is unspeakable. We well, can't. No, first of all, it's QAnon. It's QAnon. It's QAnon. It's QAnon. <laughs> you want to know what caused January 6th? Is pervasive censorship in this country in the lead up to January 6th. You tell people in this country they cannot speak. That is when they scream. You tell people they cannot scream, that is when they tear things down. And so the reality is, we were told that you could not question where the virus came from when we all knew it came from a lab in Wuhan, which now they admit. We were told that you could not send a private message to someone on the eve of an election that Hunter Biden's laptop story was actually a true story worth considering before an election. You were systematically suppressed. So this is, think about this. You told you had to be locked down, had to take a vaccine that was mandated and forced down your throat, stay locked down in your home while Antifa and BLM roam and burn the streets of this country. So that's the lead up of one full year of telling people you have to shut up, sit down and do as you're told. And then you tell them, okay, there's an election where you didn't get the information that you needed, such as the Hunter Biden laptop story being real and suppressed. That's what caused January 6th is a cycle of censorship in this country. And until we look ourselves in the mirror and admit truth on that, we will not move forward as a country. And I think that's the real cause. We're not, and I'm sorry to say this, Tucker, but I think until we reckon with that reality, I worry that that is the beginning of, it's a friendly parley compared to what's to come, unless we step up and speak truth, restore integrity, and actually lead us to who we are as a people rather than sweeping the truth under the rug. How, how can you... That talks exactly, Adam, to what you were talking about, how people felt suppressed in their speech. They couldn't, they couldn't talk. And then they saw the government running rampant and some people being favored over others. 
because some some groups were allowed to speak and allowed to act and you know this political speech of uh demonstrating for the BLM was rioting and the government was okay with that whereas this public speech of demonstrating in January 6 was deemed an insurrection although the property damage that accumulated if you look at it and the body counts were drastically less now i'm not justifying either of them but what i'm saying is a democracy in general and a democratic republic for which we are cannot allow censorship in any form and Vivek goes on to say this much more eloquently in this next segment here so Cody um, start us off at segment 1038 and he's going to explain how to measure the health of a democratic republic and it, and, it, and he'll go into a bit that we hear we're a democracy over and over and over again from the media. And I think there is, honestly, a nefarious intention there by most of the media to, to try to make people understand or, or accept that they have a voice in every decision that's made in government, and that's, that's a democracy. But that's not what we are. They have a voice in who's elected in government, and then we honor the rule of law for those elected officials. And that's a difference. And so when people say, this is not a democracy because you're not making this choice on this and this choice on that, for example, abortion laws or uh, affirmative action laws and so on and so forth. If you're not specifically, individually, making your own decision on those laws, then the democracy is failing. No, a democracy elects representatives that we trust then to enact laws. And if we don't like those laws, then we don't just go and break them by opening up the border and letting it people flood across. We elect different representatives that will make laws that we do agree with. So anyway, there's a little civics lesson for you. Let's go into this um, clip here from... Vivek and uh, Tucker Carlson. How can you, just as a philosophical question, a lot of the people who are pushing censorship, in fact, I would say almost all of them in both parties, particularly the Democratic Party, claim they're doing so in order to protect democracy. But how can you have a democracy with censorship? So you want to know the best measure of the health of a democracy? We're a constitutional republic, but I'll use lowercase d democracy as a fill-in, right? <laughs> couldn't resist. Got... People always applauded that. I love that. It's just the truth, though, right? No, it is We're a republic. But the civics majors love it. Yeah, that's great. But the best measure of the health of our American democracy, our constitutional republic, is the percentage of people who feel free to say what they actually think in public. That's the metric. It's not the number of ballots cast every November. That's just going through the motions. It is not some other metric of what the media says on a given day. It's the percentage of people who will say in public what they're willing to say behind closed doors. There's no doubt we're doing poorly. The culture is censorious enough. Now, if you say the government on top of that is using social media companies to do through the back door what government could not censor through the front door under the Constitution... That creates the real threat to lowercase d democracy. My, my litmus test is if Vladimir Putin was doing it and we would call it a threat to democracy, it's a threat to democracy when we do it on this side of the Atlantic as well. Okay, that's a good way of not pointing the finger at somebody else but looking ourselves in the mirror and asking ourselves who we really are. 
how many people, how many of our listeners out there feel like you can say in the street what you feel and feel comfortable to say behind closed doors to either a stranger or in a public forum or in a grocery store and feel like your opinion is going to be respected, albeit maybe not agreed with, but respected and and that you're not going to be either censored or blacklisted or shouted at. Do you feel that way right now? Because in our office, we try very hard to create a safe space to speak freely about how you feel. Now, we're going to maintain a level of professionalism regardless. I don't care what your political beliefs are. I don't care what any of your social religious backgrounds are or, or anything else. I don't care what your pronouns are. We're going to maintain a level of professionalism. But if you feel a certain way, I want to encourage you to discuss that and feel like we're not going to yell and shout you down or belittle you. Um, We're going to hear your point of view. And if we feel like we have um, a counterpoint that is valid, then we're going to speak that counterpoint and let truth win out. And truth ultimately will win out, but it it requires speech to be open and free in the first place. Absolutely. And so what we're seeing now, I would argue, is that, uh, like you mentioned, when you when you ask that question to the audience, how do you actually feel if you're in the grocery store? Can you really express what you feel or you think? Or are you worried about retribution in some form or fashion? I would, I, When I ask myself that, that question, I would not be able to answer in the affirmative because I, I'm i worried constantly about what I say and, and how I say it. I don't know if that's so much an issue of because of retri- retribution from the listener as it is. I just, uh, I want to be polite, you know, but um, there's a lot of people that sometimes politeness needs to move out of the way and let's just say what you are thinking. That way we can get to the bottom of the issue. And this, again, going back, I'm not a marriage counselor or a therapist, but uh, in a marriage, this is a very good example because oftentimes what I find is that couples with issues, usually that comes from not being able to, or um, a fear of expressing what they really think, what they really feel, and they, and that fear of the other person either being offended or being mad and coming at them or, or doing something um, that is not going to be fun to deal with. And so as a consequence of that, I think a lot of times people will suppress what they're really feeling or what they're really thinking uh, because they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to deal with offending somebody else or hurting somebody else and going through that whole process It's a that's a challenge to go through, or they don't want to feel like retribution is going to happen to them in that particular relationship. And so it's much easier just to, to push those feelings or those thoughts way down. But I think if we were to get to the spot where you feel comfortable um, expressing yourself, what you really believe, what you really feel, free from, uh, or um, and maybe there's not even a, a way to do this in most relationships, but free from the thought that, man, if I really say what I think, I'm not going to be lambasted for that or I'm not going to offend anybody. What I often find is that when I'm talking and I feel like I'm going to offend somebody, I usually preface that with, um, I don't want to, I don't mean to offend, 
but blah, 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 you know, and then you come with that phrase. And for some reason that tends to help. I don't know why, but it's a precursor. Like I still said the same thing I was going to say, but because I said, I don't mean to offend, but I think that's uh, what it does is it sets the the playing field for the listener where they, they're bracing themselves. Oh, Adam's going to say something that could be taken out of context or could be possibly interpreted as offensive. Now that he's got that out of the way, now that I'm prepared to hear this, I'm more prepared to hear it in, so, in a better setting that or environment that I'm able to digest what's actually being said as opposed to um, just being offended because I call you fat or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you could say like, hey, did you stop going to the gym? Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, are you really tired today? Yeah. No. Oh, you look tired. Why don't you say I look like crap? I mean, that's what you mean, right? Just say... Adam, you look like crap today. Because people are polite. Yeah. And, yeah, and, 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 I, and I think that's okay. And that's the main difference between, I think you and I are very um, frank and, and, and we get each other. And I think most of our staff get that too. And they've, they've uh, developed a thick skin and, and understood that we don't mean to offend. And we're, we're, we're quick to apologize too because we see that we do offend and um, we make mistakes, and we say, "I'm sorry," you know, and and we admit that we've got faults, and we've we've expressed ourselves in a way that can be hurtful. But at the same time, they then develop a respect for the fact that we're going to speak truth. And so, when we pay them a compliment, it's an actual compliment. It's not just this uh, passing phrase or. Um, something that we're saying with with no substance whatsoever because we don't speak without substance what we speak is true and um, sometimes it's hurtful yet we will be very truthful in our praise as well and I think when people understand that then it it the the positivity that can come out of it far outweighs the negative impact of oh I got offended because they said my hair looks like crap so what do you think, listeners? Are you ready to give this a shot? You're going to go to work today and just let it rip? Tell Say exactly you. what you feel and what you <laughs> you think? Oh, just be careful. Just be polite about it. Like, hey, have you been going to the gym lately? Because I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say the, ba- the last part. We got to go to break. This is Life, Death, and Law. We'll be right back after this. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. 
You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner in studio with Adam Hanson and Cody Beeson. We are attorneys. We do estate planning. We help people um, understand what assets they have, put them in order, and uh, make a plan so they can pass it on to their loved ones or their favorite organizations when they pass away with the least amount of government intervention. So um, I think that it's natural for us to think about government and how much it's involved in our lives on a daily basis as as opposed to just when we pass away. And Adam and I naturally have an inclination to talk about that and to explain that. Now, we know that we put a lot more information out there on this radio show than actually um, is directly relevant, perhaps, to our business, but it's relevant to the community, the society, the nation that we live in and that we love. And so for that, we, we talk about it. And if we had to ascribe one issue that was... Uh, responsible for the majority of the woes that we are facing, I would have to say that's the lack of religion that is that is um, embraced by the everyday American. This movement to um, atheism has has grown speed faster than we've ever seen before, and and it's frightening. Because um, it's, that is one of the pillars of communism and losing your identity as an individual and who you are and, and, and your self-worth. And we believe that we are children of God, that we have this divine potential, and we want to uh, manifest that through our acts, through the care that we demonstrate to one another and through the productivity that we provide to both our, in our own lives and to our families and the community. Vivek, the reason we're talking about him so much is because I think he's a, he's a candidate that really has a bright future. I, I like him individually because I think he could literally start to unite the country again because he sees that there are more things in common between Americans in general than there are differences, whereas most politicians focus on only the differences, and he points out that there's this void in understanding that we need God in our lives and for our country. So, Cody, why don't you play that clip? And I see people my age in particular across this country who are not doing well because we're starved for purpose and meaning. The people are looking to be part of something bigger than ourselves, and yet we've lost the things that used to ground us. Faith, patriotism, hard work, family, these things are gone. And so we're lost in the wilderness. And then we latch on to whatever the other side serves up for us. You know, we could wokeism, transgenderism, climatism, whatever it is. These are symptoms, drug addiction, depression, suicide, you name it. These are symptoms of a deeper void of purpose and meaning in our country. But Tucker, I think the good news in that is I think our country's not doing well, but I think that this is also our opportunity as a movement to level up and fill that void, that vacuum with our own vision, individual, family, nation, God. When I talk to young people about this, they're more interested in that than they are in race, gender, sexuality, and climate. 
And so now we got to start running to something as Americans. And if we do, I'm confident that our country will be doing well again. That's where I'm at. Is it my imagination or are people who weren't raised in traditional religious households who haven't spent a lot of time thinking about theology all of a sudden talking about God a lot? Do you notice that? I do notice that, actually. And I think this is a good sign because you know, there's an old expression, right? If there's a hole the size of God in your heart and God does not fill it, something else will instead. That's what's happened in the last decade in our country. Something else, some secular religion has filled that void. But it hasn't really satisfied our moral hunger, right? And so that's kind of, that effect is fading. And I think people are hungry to turn back to the real thing. The conversation's coming up, but they say it with a kind of prudishness, yes. right? right? God is a four-letter word. It's sort of a thing you have to tiptoe around. And I think that right now, family's the same way, the nuclear family. Makes some people uncomfortable when I say it, but actually this is the best known form of governance to mankind. We could focus on that, and if that was his only political position, that would get my vote right there. That the nuclear family and the family unit in itself is the best form of government known to mankind, period. What do you think about that, Adam? What do you think about that, Cody? You, you guys are in different family circumstances. Adam, you've been married for 15 years. You've got six kids. Cody, you're... You not, not married. No, no kids, yeah. Ma- well, but you're in a very dogs, serious relationship. Yeah. And um, so what do you think? Is the family unit the best form of government known to humankind? I, I think it provides structure that we desperately need and we've lost. I mean, I, I think there's uh, examples that you, you see, and I think the system we have now is set up to encourage people not to get married. Um, for example, I know friends that, that they're not getting married because, you know, they, they're going to have a kid, you know, and, and actually they lose assistance if they were to be married. Right. So we have a, a system that's, that's helping them. It discourages. Say, Thank you. Yeah, discourages. Yeah. And, and that is actually... That occurred beginning in the mid-1960s, and what happened was, um, under Lyndon B. Johnson, there was incentives for um, families who did not have a breadwinner in the home or married um, to get government handouts. And so what young families would do is not get married, and then that increased the social acceptance of having children out of wedlock and having multiple partners and and children from multiple partners and therefore destroying the family unit. And when the family unit was destroyed, then the sense of responsibility and accountability for your own actions, including sexual actions, including, you know, when you have sex, then a child oftentimes results from that. And then abortion skyrockets and, and all of the ills that have um, really corrupted our society skyrocketed. I, I was just going to say, like, it, it never really allowed the family unit to solidify. You know, it didn't it doesn't have a, a firm foundation when when you're coming at it from that angle. Um, so I, I, I guess at the end of the day, um, it's kind of disheartening to see that there is a system that doesn't encourage what is naturally right. Right. And I think the family unit ties in what's the most important in human nature, love first, and then responsibility. Each person in the family ought to do chores. They ought to contribute to the household. 
and uh, accountability. If they do not do that, then they don't get the, when you're a young child, you don't get your allowance. When you're an older child, you don't get your college paid for. If you don't put in and work, then you don't get that. And, and a family can provide for the things that the children need, but they need to be individually accountable. And also, you know, Adam, you, you started the show with this, um, to something that you believe in. So if you believe in the family and you're borrowing money from your parents, then you're going to feel okay repaying that student loan instead of saying, you know what, mom, dad, I'm not legally obligated to pay this back to you. Well, it's not about the legal obligation. It's about the moral obligation to do what's right. And in a family, you see that morality. In a government, you don't. And that's why the family unit has to be the bedrock of any functional government. If it's not, then that government quickly is corrupted and crumbles. I think it's refreshing to hear an individual talk about that on the political stage uh, because that's that has been in my mind, one of the, the premier issues with, if you want to call it the culture crisis of America. As, as we listen to these clips and as you're talking, Sean, one of the biggest things that comes to my mind is that this word of strength. How is America strong? and Or are, are we strong? I think the strength of, of a community comes from buying into common ideas. And I think that's what uh, Mr. Ramaswamy is talking about, is We've got to get back to these core principles of family, faith, and community, um, this patriotism. And I think that's what's happened over the course of our history. I think our strongest moments in history as the United States of America have been when there is a crisis such that we have to believe in something, and that unifies us. That, that brings us above any of these other social issues that are just really diversions, to be honest, like World War II, World War I. You've got the the 9-11 attack, Pearl Harbor. All these things are big, tragic events in our history, but they seem to unify us as a people. I, I still remember where I was when I watched those towers get hit by the planes, and there was an overwhelming sense of the community, and this is my perception of it, that we were all in. Like, whoever did this, they're going to pay, and we're all in as a nation going against that evil act. That's how I felt, and I, I think that's mostly how the United States in general felt, and we were all in. Um, and that type of an act like that is a unifier. It's a tragedy, but it's also a unifier. And our moment in history there with the United States uh, sentiment of community, patriotism, I, I, I don't remember seeing as many flags as I saw flown after 9-11 as I, as I did then. I don't remember hearing over the airwaves people talking about praying more and more. Why is that? Why was it, why was our inclination to turn to a greater being and to to come in supplication to God in that moment of crisis? But when we did, we were stronger together. And I think uh, Mr. Ramaswamy is touching on something that really these core ideas make us unified as a nation. And they're the ideas that we were founded on with our founders. And so if we can get back to those, all these other social things just tend to go to go away. And we don't really even need to talk about them anymore or even deal with them because they're not an issue. And what tends to happen is then we gain more freedom because now we're not so overwhelmed with social programs and agencies dictating to us in our lives what we need to be doing or else we go get fined or put in jail. Rather, those get 
thrown by the wayside and we're free to do what we want to do and reap the consequences, whether that's good or bad. But unless we get back to these these issues of family first, um, faith, and patriotism, I, I think uh, we're always going to be uh, weak. We are weak. I mean, if we were to go to war right now with a Russia or with a China, we are weak because we're so divided. We've got to get back to a unifying force where we can say, I'm a, I am a, an American, and this is what it means. I believe in God. I believe in my family. And I believe in my country. I know that my neighbor down the street has my back. If we go to war with Russia, we're going to be fighting for each other's lives. And I know that. I don't know if we could say that right now. If yeah, we go to I, war and- I, I look at the generation that's in college right now that's fighting age and uh, think about, okay, if they were called upon to defend our nation and our way of life from an attack by a unified front of China and Russia— um, similar to what we saw with Japan and Germany back in um, the 40s. And would we have confidence that we were going to prevail in that conflict? And I get a, a deep pit in my stomach when I think about that. How do you feel, Adam? No, I totally agree with you. I mean, I'd be worried about selfies and Instagram posts on the battlefront when they're supposed to be you know, protecting our interests ab- abroad. Yeah, or, or correcting their uh, commanding officer about the, the pronoun that they prefer. Yeah, or calling them, heaven forbid, by their first name or their last name instead of their first name or, you know, the, the, the problem with authority in the ranks. The military, those that have been in the military are very aware of that sometimes you do things that you don't want to do, but because it's done that way, you do it. And a good example of this, I bring that up because my brother said he, um, a couple weeks ago, he went to the, oh, the Midway over in San Diego Harbor. And so he took a tour of the Midway there in the harbor and um, the guys were taking him on his tour and they said, when you go up the stairs, you have to do it like this. You can't do this. You don't, both hands, they told him exactly how to do it. That's how you do it. You're in the military now. You do it like that. And, and so it doesn't leave a lot of leeway for your own thoughts or your own, your own actions. And I thought about that. I thought, you know, I have a hard time with authority a lot, but I understand the mentality of military acts and and getting to the unified front. Everybody does it this way. We're united. We are on the same front. Do it this way or you're out kind of thing. Yeah. And you see the lifelong relationships that resulted from people that fought together and struggled together for a unified cause. And you don't see it that it's, it's based on that they had a similar background or a similar faith. It was that they fought for a singular purpose, and that was for freedom from tyranny. And right now, we're allowing this tyranny to sink in little by little, and um, the faith that I have that we would be able to stand up again and fight against that tyranny is waning, and I think it will be restored if we start forgetting more about how we need to be fulfilled individually and how we need to be recognized by others and how they treat us as opposed to how we treat others. We need to treat them with respect, but also know that we're going to be respected when we speak our mind and not be censored or punished. Absolutely. We got to go. This is Life, Death, and the Law. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson at 928 928- 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. 
Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.